programming note. This one's, it's a little gory. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 226, Be Careful What You Wish For. Last time, the pre-attack bombardment stopped at 8.15 on May 6th. At 8.30, the 17th Brigade advanced, starting at 1,300 yards from the main enemy line. But wanting to get as close as possible to the Foch line, the main defensive line, the men of the 17th crept forward. The only sound was their feet swishing through the grass. And then, as Lieutenant Ronald Morton noted, suddenly a rifle cracked out in front, and as if that was the signal, the enemy let loose with everything they had. Normally, given all that had happened thus far, it might be assumed that men began falling as the French, in somewhat of a panic, let her rip. After all, the British needed this to work in order to not be trapped by other French forces coming up from the south. On the other hand, the French, knowing that enemy troops were behind them, equally needed a victory, or else they would become the prisoners. As war, or rather victory, is about not being the first one to give up, this would be a clash of desperation. But the French started with an error. For whatever reason, and it may have come down to nerves, the men on the Foch line were firing too high. The 17th heard the bullets whistle over their heads and kept going. The British troops eventually slammed into the line, and as always happens at moments like this, Chaos ensued, but not for Sergeant Jones of the Welsh Fusiliers. He rushed a machine gun pillbox, again, this was only possible due to the confusion, on the left side of the road. Running up, he stabbed the first three men he engaged with his bayonet. Such a gruesome display unnerved the other twelve men around the gun. They surrendered. The machine gun to the right of the road also fell but it was less gruesome and more costly as two British officers were wounded. But it was the Seaforth Highlanders that reenacted a scene from Braveheart. Brigadier Gerald Tarleton, commander of the 17th Brigade, told them to head in with bayonets fixed. The men took off their packs for increased speed and decreased noise and slammed into the French Senegalese but the defenders were not using their sharp steel. They decided on modern technology. Here's how Sergeant Stockman described the scene. French Senegalese troops were still firing mortars horizontally at us and drilling machine gun fire into our ranks. Somehow, we just kept moving, driven by some inexplicable group momentum, and this with men dropping left, right, and center, some literally torn to shreds. But there was more than momentum. There was savagery. When Stockton got his first enemy combatant, he thrust his bayonet so hard, the tip came out of the man's back. Bad luck for the victim, but now Stockton realized he couldn't free his weapon, and it was only a matter of seconds before someone else got him, unarmed as he was for the moment. Back to Stockton, at first, I did not realize the ferocity with which I struck him, and then found to my horror that I could not pull it out again. I had to fire a round, twist savagely, and then pull in order to disengage it from his body. 
The sight of what had happened made me quite sick. A burst of blood washed over me and down the barrel of my rifle. I recall vomiting, then pulling myself together and continuing with the advance deep into the Vichy positions. But, it turns out, momentum and fierceness can be canceled by fear and desperation. One Highlander had grabbed a Senegalese soldier, but it was more of a desperate hold than a planned one, which is when the French soldier started biting into his lower arm. But the Highlander couldn't pull back. The struggling continued, as did the biting. By the time the British soldier pulled his arm back, there was no hand on the end of it. Another soldier, obviously panicked and in the thick of it, quickly went through all his ammunition and found himself alone, which is when he was rushed by three enemy troops. All he had was his bayonet, so he detached it and poked at the men as they came at him. They were wary, but did not stop the attack. Then the first two stepped back, but not the third. He charged again. Tarleton's man was now getting tired and could guess what the end result was going to be, so with nothing to lose, he swung the sharpened metal in a wide arc. The man's head rolled off his shoulders. With the 17th Brigade charging so fiercely, the French line broke that night, but it was only the beginning of the battle. Military prudence demands that secondary defensive lines be set up, the next serious line was two miles north of the now-broken Joffrey line. So the men of the 17th kept going, and the line at the town of Antanambad was equally disassembled by 11 p.m. Now that this was done, the signal was sent out that had the reserve battalions, the 2nd Scots and the Welsh, move forward. These men had a much easier time getting through what remained of the Joffrey line and soon were on the run again. But, having learned from past mistakes, not that they would not be repeated, the tanks in front of them slowed down so the men could keep up. Thus, mutual protection. Now, it was on to Aunt Serene. When the Allied forces reached the town, they saw panic, that is, the panic of the French. Some had already set their own homes aflame as to deny them to the enemy. But this was not a time for going slow. Major General Francis Festing knew that to give the enemy time was to give them options. So while the regional capital had been reached, the British troops were ordered not to stop running. At 1 a.m., now May 7th, the defensive headquarters for the French was reached. But again, there were no time for games or discussion. A Bren gun carrier with men of the 2nd Scots Fusiliers rammed their way in, and Colonel Clairboux and Captain Martin of the French Navy raised their hands in surrender. This became official at 1.45 a.m. But the fighting wasn't over, certainly not for the entire island, and it seemed even for the northern half. While there were now two big holes in the Joffrey line, the two forts on each end, they were still defiant. Port Bellevue on the eastern end held out that night of the 6th-7th. Currently, C Company of the South Lanks was keeping that fort tied down, but Festing needed that fort to surrender. Sometime during the night, though D Company had been helping take on the fort, after too many casualties, that company as a whole backed away. 
but there was no way one company could take that fort. So Senior Platoon Commander of C Company, Lieutenant M.R. Emsley, decided on another tact. When the sun first rose on May 7th, Emsley, with his company sergeant major, walked up to the French fort and demanded that they surrender. But either due to distrust or hatred, or both, the French not only said no, but added that the two British officers were now their prisoners. Emsley realized he bit off more than he could chew. And thinking it was only a matter of time before this place was bombed, Emsley said, Okay, we are your prisoners, but let's take a ten-minute truce so the men on each side could rest and calm down. The French saw nothing wrong with this. After all, their game was to delay, so they agreed. But during those more relaxed ten minutes, Emsley and the company sergeant major escaped. For this, Emsley was awarded the Military Cross, if only for making the French look gullible. With the sunrise came General Sturgis himself to Aunt Serene. Taking command, he got an update and was told that the two forts were still holding out and causing trouble, as they could both fire on the road closest to them. Sturgis did not want to focus on the forts. Rather, he wanted to bring all he could to silence the batteries on the Arangia Peninsula so the fleet could enter the bay. But holding that up was the eastern fort, Bellevue. Thus, it was on Sturgis's radar. Fortunately, a detailed map of the area had been captured and given to Seifert, and he passed it on to Sturgis, who now knew of the guns' dispositions, but more importantly, what it would take to get to those guns and what was blocking the Allies' path. Just to the south of the Arangia batteries was the Enco-Reich barracks, another French defensive line. From what Sturgis could see, he would have to take Fort Bellevue, then go another 12 miles over a cumbersome road, and then approach the guns that were on the top of a height, making what the men had been through thus far child's play. But Sturgis knew he didn't have the time to attack landward, and he did not want to lose the 300 or so men that he calculated would be the cost of possibly taking this height. Instead, Sturgis, like Emsley, would ask the French to give up. So now it was time to apply pressure. Sturgis had more men moved towards Fort Bellevue, along with two-pounder guns, to not only reduce that threat, but to be ready to advance north for the Arangia Peninsula. But Admiral Seifert did not see the situation the same as Sturgis, and Seifert was in overall command. The men were told to move out, and Sturgis, before he had decided on diplomacy, had asked Seifert to be ready to bombard the Orangia batteries. Made up of the Romilies, Devonshire, and Hermione, these ships were to let loose at 9 a.m., but Sturgis wanted this delayed to see if the French would surrender. But this was Seifert's reply. I was tired of this shilly-shallying and parlaying for which I had given no authorization and was keeping the fleet steaming up and down in dangerous waters. Consequently, I informed the general that I intended to commence a 15-minute bombardment to encourage the enemy to surrender. Sturgis would be happy if this worked, but if it did not, he knew it would be even harder to get a ceasefire 
once the men were shooting at each other. Still, Sturgis wanted his chance, so asked the Admiral again. This time, Seifert said yes, but the Romilies had fired off a few rounds before word was sent. Either way, both sides calmed down and started talking. Speaking for the Allies was Lieutenant Colonel Stockwell, with a white flag and, more importantly, two bottles of gin. Soon it was decided that all forts and batteries here would surrender, a wise investment of alcohol. And with that, Seifert's minesweepers went around the channel of the Arangia Pass and removed all threats by 4.20 p.m. Forty minutes later, the Romilies, Hermione, and two destroyers entered Diego Suarez Bay. The good news was that the part of the island that had to do with sending supplies to the Far East was now in British hands. The bad news was that the vast majority of Madagascar was not, nor a vast majority of French troops. So the invaluable bay had been taken, but there was still much fighting to do. How much did success so far cost the British? 109 men dead or missing, another 283 wounded, and hundreds others with less debilitating wounds. The carriers, indomitable and illustrious, had flown 361 sorties, but had lost seven craft. A total of 236 bombs had been dropped so far on land, and 24 depth charges and five torpedoes had been used against French submarines. And finally, the Royal Navy had fired 669 shells, though embarrassingly a third of those went in trying to subdue Windsor Castle on the west coast, and only the HMS Auricula had been lost, as she was a corvette and thus the smallest ship to be designated a warship. It was a loss Seifert could live with. On the French side, and yes, they were counting their casualties as well, as this war was not over. The defenders had lost almost 700 men and 700 aircraft, all kinds. Of those French ships that had engaged the enemy, they were now sunk or badly damaged. Both sides would pass out awards, but it was Colonel Clairboux when he was taken back to the British home island. Vichy, still defiant, awarded him the General of the Brigade, or Brig in this case. With this done, Force F, the rest of the ships, swung round and also entered the bay the following day at 5.30, May 8th. Then the port city formally surrendered to Seifert. The next day, Churchill sent the following message to Seifert and Sturgis. I congratulate you cordially upon the swift and resolute way in which your difficult and hazardous operation was carried through. Pray give all ranks my best wishes and tell them that their exploit has been of real assistance to Britain and the United Nations. Stirring stuff, but there was still about 95% of the island to capture. The rest of the day was spent collecting enemy troops and taking away their weapons. In all, some 6,000 troops were marched through the port town and placed in their barracks, a temporary jail. But it was the sight of those 6,000 men and their equipment that rocked the British troops. Jim Stockwell would write, The sight that passed us gave me a jolt in the stomach, 
There were literally thousands of highly professional French, Foreign Legion, and Senegalese troops, and with them, an impressive array of cannon, heavy mortars, machine guns, and boxes of ammunition. Which left one resisting group. The French troops in Joffreville, about 20 miles or 32 kilometers south of Antserain. They held out until 11 p.m., when word got to them that the fighting, at least here, was over. The men there stood down, and a Bren gun carrier patrol entered the town. But clearly, all these men could not be allowed to stay on the island. One, the British did not have the means to feed and watch over them, and two, as the island was still being contested, these men might have a change of heart. Seifert's solution was to send them to South Africa, along with the British and French wounded. But being humane for those French troops that signed an agreement not to take up arms again against Britain, they would be allowed to remain. Still, the SS Aranzi, an ocean liner come troop ship, took off 111 French officers, 836 French troops, various ranks, 402 Senegalese, 55 Germans, 70 Italians, 5 civilian officials, and 26 wives, and 44 children. But the story of these people does not end there. Once they landed at Durban, the men found that if they joined the fighting French, that is, the free French, they would not have to remain in captivity. And in a sign of things to come after the war, what with the Western leaders going on and on about equality and independence, all of the Senegalese troops signed up with de Gaulle's men. Yet the French soldiers stayed loyal to Pétain. They kept their hatred of Britain and they stayed put. As for the Malagasy troops, they were confined to their barracks on the island for a few weeks, and then released with a warning of what would happen if they resisted a second time. And yet, the battle for the bay was not over. First, the German crew aboard the ship Wartenfels were put under the gun. When the fighting had started, the crew had offered to help the French defend the port city, but they were cruelly told no. There was no love lost here. Still, the German sailors did manage to damage the port's pumping system for the dry docks, but this would be fixed in time. Then, it got interesting. Seems that six of the men amongst the crew were on the British Field Security's blacklist. Basically, they were agents of propaganda and information, i.e. spies. The next day, during a headcount, it was discovered that two of the propaganda agents had escaped. Sturgis guessed that they were heading south, probably to the capital, Tananarive, modern-day Antanarivo. Which is when Sergeant Croft Cook of field security said, I'll round them up, sir. So he took a small crew, they were all on motorcycles, and dashed south. As Croft Cook tells it, their trip was treacherous, to say the least. There were fallen trees, cracks, rocks, loose fine sand, which sent me skidding across the road, rotten wooden bridges, and stony fords, sudden stampedes of cattle in front of us, sharp climbs of craggy hillsides, all the time the parching dust from the dry red earth 
the crimson dust which clung to eyelids, stuck to wet lips, choked throat and nose, colored our khaki shirts, our knees, our arms. And because the motorbikes followed the trail and looked for signs, versus driving pell-mell to the south, the two German spies were eventually caught on the eastern coast, about 300 miles away from Diego Suarez, but still hundreds of miles away from the capital. Back to the war, Sturgis had the men struggle mightily to prepare Anserain and Diego Suarez for a French counterattack. The bad news was that the planners of Operation Ironclad suspected this would happen, that a large force would come from Dakar on the west coast of Africa. This force expected to be an entire brigade backed by battleships, destroyers, cruisers, and submarines would join with Annette's still existing force and simply overwhelm the invaders. But the good news for the British was that the French journey would take just over two weeks. Madagascar was a long way from being subdued. Postscript. If you want to know more about Croft Cook, he wrote a book called The Blood Red Island, which talks about the war in general, but certainly his chase looking for the two German spies. So, uh, I hope this wasn't too gory. I normally try not to go that far into it with a biting off, chewing off of the hand and some of the bayonet going through the man's body, but I just wanted to ex- to convey the intensity of the fight of finally breaking the Joffrey line. And in case you're wondering, which you're not, this is how much I care about you people. Today's my birthday, September 21st, and I'm doing this anyway. Why? Because I care about you deeply. Two, your pain. And three, my family pretty much abandoned me for the first half of the day, giving me the time to do this. So anyway, um, I hope you're enjoying this series. I did not know much, uh, practically anything about Madagascar before this, and I'm enjoying this very much. Um, So we'll see you as soon as we can with the next episode, and we'll just go from there and and see what happens. What will the French do? What will Sturgis do? We'll have to wait and find out. Take care, everyone.